Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. Today, we have a really fun uh, conversation, helpful conversation, insightful, but also really interesting and fun um, because the book that we're talking about is a really fun book. It's it's not fun in the sense that it's easy to read. It's actually quite convicting, uh, but it's it's the way it's laid out. We'll get into it in the podcast. Um, it's really fascinating, really interesting, really creative. Uh, we are talking to Sky Jathani about his latest book, What If Jesus Was Serious. And uh, Isaac, you and I are both familiar with Sky because of a bunch of work that he's put out there. Yeah, it's the and, and the Veggie Tales connection. That's right. For those of you who don't know, Sky co-hosts a podcast called the Holy Post Podcast. Big podcast, bigger than our podcast, which makes way me bigger. Feel, just makes me feel a little bit competitive. But uh, I know Isaac's seething with competition right now. Yeah, I like to win. (laughs) So this whole podcast was just a reminder that we're losing. (laughs) But we'll catch up because you all are listening. No, seriously, though, uh, the Holy Post podcast is great and uh, such a helpful resource. Many of you know it, listen to it already. And uh, Sky Jathani is the co-host of it, along with Phil Vischer, who is the creator, like we said, of the VeggieTales, which, you know, if you have kids or even if you don't have kids, you probably know know VeggieTales. But today we're talking to Sky about his newest book, uh, which is really it's a collection of short little devotional essays uh, where he's journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. And what he does is he helps us see just how challenging that sermon is. Often we think of Jesus's teachings as being a comfort to our lives, and they certainly are, but we neglect the fact that Jesus's teachings are also so significantly confrontational. Um, Isaac, I, I know you and I both lean in this direction, but talk about that a little bit. Just why do you think we forget and neglect in sort of modern evangelical Christendom today, uh, you know, in Christianity? in our churches, just the confrontational nature of Jesus's teachings. Yeah, I don't know exactly why, but one thing that comes to mind is the fact that we're brought up hearing the teachings of Jesus. So like I teach my kids the teachings of Jesus. Mm. She like my daughter is not aware how radical the claim to love your enemies is. She's just growing up with that ethic and that virtue and that that kind of ethical standard. So um, it's weird. She'll, she'll confront me, like say, say we're driving and I get, I get mad because someone cuts me off and I'm like this idiot. She'll, mm. she quotes scripture. To me. She's sick. <laughs> like, dad, you're supposed to love them even when they're your enemy. And I'm like, what? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. So for her, it's just, that's the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. So, but you, most people don't realize these things are confrontational. They are radical. They're meant to make you like sit in shock. Like, yeah. What do you mean, love my enemies? Yeah. What do you mean, turn the other cheek? Yeah, right. Yeah, and um, Sky gets into that and so much more in the book. And he, you know, if you guys follow him, he's such a strong voice in that direction, uh, helping us see the confrontational nature of following Jesus, particularly in uh, the day and age in which we find ourselves, which is so challenging in so many ways. So, um, I think you're going to find his book really helpful, and uh, our hope is that you find this conversation uh, really helpful as well. We think you will. So here is our chat with Sky Jathani.
Hey, Sky, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. You know, a lot of people are familiar with you. A lot of people are actually familiar with your voice. <laughs> a lot of people I know because they listen to you and Phil Vischer on uh, the Holy Post podcast, which is a super helpful resource. You know, if you, if you don't know it, I would highly recommend going and checking it out. A lot of people also know you from years of speaking and writing, and several of your books are books that have been uh, helpful for me and for so many people I know. Um, but it's hard, you know, if people don't follow you regularly, it's hard to sort of pinpoint Sky Jathani, you know, like he's like all over the place. I see his name everywhere. Tell us a little bit, first and foremost, like uh, uh, just very briefly, your your journey, your background, you know, how long you've been following Jesus and how did that even journey, how did that journey start? And then what do you do uh, now and how'd you get to this place? Yeah, I don't, I, I, briefly is the hard part, isn't it? Especially the <laughs> older you get. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. My father is an immigrant from India. My mother is Anglo-American native of Chicago. And so I grew up in this very diverse home, uh, multi-ethnic home. My mom kind of raised us in a, a Baptist church, even though my father is not a Christian. And came to faith really late in high school in a significant way, even though being raised in the church, I kind of always had one foot in, one foot out. I think like a lot of uh, multicultural kids, I, I didn't have a, a single identity just handed to me on a platter. So I wrestled with questions of identity maybe a few years earlier than some of my peers. So kind of came to that turning point uh, when I was 18 years old and then went off to college, went to a state university where I studied comparative religion and history. So a lot of Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, and then American history as well, which is an incredibly marketable degree. So, you know, people were just beating down my door when I graduated, wanting to give me a job. Uh, so I went to seminary and did that outside of Chicago here at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I got my MDiv degree, uh, served at some churches and as a hospital chaplain during those years, graduated from seminary, and took a position kind of back in my hometown at a church here in Wheaton, Illinois, which I vowed I would never do, but that's what happened. So I was on staff at my church for uh, eight years in different capacities, got ordained, helped plant a church, um, preached a lot, eventually got connected with Christianity Today, whose headquarters aren't too far away from here. And again, long story short, left my full-time church role in 2008 to go on full-time with Christianity Today. I actually left CT three different times over those years and kind of bopped back and forth between pastoral ministry and being an editor and a writer for CT. The third time I left CT, it actually stuck, which was in 2015. But those years were important because it, it got me traveling around the country, engaging with a lot of Christian leaders, both in the U.S. and internationally. And it gave me a larger outlook on the church, uh, honed my writing skills and communication skills. And so started writing books in that era. And then since 2015, I've been independent. And uh, back in 2012, Phil Vischer and I started the Holy Post podcast as just a, a hobby, which I can't believe we're doing eight years on now. So today I'm by uh, podcast. I'm still an ordained pastor. Uh, even though I'm not on staff at my church, I write books. I have a daily devotional that I write. I speak and do some consulting work. I just kind of get involved in mischief from place to place. So I'm kind of a, a free agent that has the flexibility to engage with different partnerships and uh, cooperative uh, ministry roles with different groups or foundations. And I've been really grateful that, that that's been working out. 
Yeah. And we're really grateful for all the work that you do. Um, you mentioned writing books and that's something you've been doing for a while. And again, like I said earlier, so, so many of your um, books, so much of your written work uh, has been helpful for the church and for Christians at large uh, in a variety of ways. And we want to talk a little bit about your newest book. Um, and the title is so fascinating. What if Jesus was serious, which uh, I think for a lot of Christians today, initially the feeling might be, what do you mean? Like, I, I know he's serious, <laughs> but you're sort of asking the question, um, and the subtitle gets to it, you know, a visual guide to the teachings we love to ignore. And um, it's a really creative book. It's a really creative endeavor. I even struggle to even call it a book because I think we have a an idea in our minds of what a book is, but th- this is very different. It's really unique and captivating in that way. It's uh, it's a series of, I don't know if you call them like essays or short little snippets of ideas with sketches, um, like hand-drawn sketches. These are sketches you've done, right? These are your own sketches? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I am no artist. They're pretty basic. <laughs> yeah, but they're like helpful. Stick figures in some cases. Yeah, 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 totally. But the stick figures are Helpful and the whole wor- the whole book though is is bound up as a, it's bound up together almost as a sort of reflection on um, the Sermon on the Mount and so many of, of the things that are uh, when you really dig beneath the surface quite subversive you know when you think about some of the ideas that Jesus proposes so I want to ask you about the book and I guess the first question is what compelled you to write this book to present these ideas. Um, as you were looking at the landscape of Christian faith, uh, maybe in, in America and maybe even globally, what compelled you at this moment to present these ideas? Why did you think it was important now? Well, I wish I could give a really crisp, pointed answer to that. But the honest truth is, I mentioned I write a daily devotional. It's called With God Daily. And some years ago, I did a series through the Sermon on the Mount in the daily devotional. And that, that devotional for me is kind of a, a test bed. It's where I noodle on ideas and I, I write on ideas and kind of get feedback from from subscribers and hear what's resonating. And I found that the Sermon on the Mount series I did was really resonating with people. And so uh, when I then looked at what would my next book be and where we are, not just as, as a church in the United States, but even throughout other parts of the world, uh, the issue of credibility kept coming up to my mind in my mind like where has the church lost its moral credibility have we lost our spiritual credibility and there's a certain segment of american christianity that believes we are being marginalized in the public square because we take our faith too seriously and my experience has been even as i've gone out and spoken on and taught the sermon on the mount i keep running into self-identified evangelicals right these people who take the bible most seriously and I kept hearing them dismiss some of the core teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's in the introduction of the book where I mentioned a class I was teaching and, and not a single adult thought that the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount were to be taken seriously. Mm. And they had been, they were regurgitating messages they had received throughout their Christian formation from other church leaders that were intended to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's just an example of a perfect life that nobody can lead and Jesus is highlighting our need for grace, and he never really intended us to live this way, or other forms of that message. And I thought, well, what if the real reason we're being marginalized, at least in a North American context, is because we don't take Jesus seriously enough? 
And when you look at where we are culturally, politically, and some of the captivity to the idolatries that are common in evangelicalism today, I think that's much more the, the issue. That we, we claim to take Jesus seriously, but the world looks at us and realizes we don't, and that erodes our, our moral credibility and the witness and mission of the church. So that's really where the the instinct came from. The, let's bring this series I did in the devotional forward. Let's make it into a book. Let's incorporate these visual learning cues for reasons we can talk about. Um, but it, I felt like it's the message at the, this moment that the church needs to be wrestling with. It's the core message of Jesus. This is what life in his kingdom looks like. Are we willing to do that? At least attempt to do it, let alone uh, succeed at it. Yeah, people don't really understand. They don't understand the fact that no one wants to live the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Like if you read that, you don't go, oh, dude. Just my, I wake up every morning wanting to act this stuff out. Like no one wants to live, live that. I think it was C.S. Lewis called, said, like, if you don't have a crisis of faith reading on the Sermon on the Mount, then you didn't like you didn't read it because it like says, dude, if this is what a Christian looks like, am I a Christian? Because it's that it's that cutting, it's that sharp. And a lot of people don't understand that there was whole schools of thought to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount. So people tried to create an eschatology where the Sermon on the Mount is just ethics for the millennial reign of Christ, but it certainly right. can apply now because it's so difficult. Um, maybe you can talk about like a couple quick examples of like, what, what's one that's in the, in the book or, the, or from the Sermon on the Mount that's just like, here's an example of something like, your flesh doesn't wake up wanting to do like it's just <laughs> well i think the, the the ultimate example of that is right at the kind of center of the sermon is jesus command to love your enemy yeah and that i can understand why i mean this is the feedback i got when i taught this to an adult class years ago is you know you can't live that way in this world because people are going to walk all over you if you genuinely love your enemy I tend to agree with that. Yes, you are probably going to be abused and, and misused if you love your enemies. But then the next question has to be, did Jesus actually live this way? And did he call his apostles and disciples to live this way? Is there any evidence that he wasn't being serious? And there isn't. I mean, he that's exactly what he did. And yes, he ended up on a Roman cross. And even there, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the very essence of the gospel is God made flesh coming to love his enemies, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 5. So uh, I think there are many elements of the Sermon on the Mount which ought to make us incredibly uncomfortable, but that's not the question. The question is not, does it make you comfortable? The question is, was Jesus serious? And the thing that I find most perplexing about Christians who want to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus ends the sermon with a parable it's the well-known parable about the wise and foolish builder, right? The man who builds his house on the rock and the man who builds his house on the sand. And when you ask, you know, churched people about that story, they often go back to their Sunday school memories of the way it was taught to them as children. And they, they quickly jump to, well, the person who builds their house on the rock is the Christian who's put their faith in Jesus. And the person who's building their house on the sand is the non-Christian who's building their life apart from, from Christ. And that's how they rationalize that sermon. That's not what Jesus said. He's explicit that the man who builds his house on the rock is the man who hears Jesus' commands and does them. So the whole point of that parable is to actually do everything Jesus has just commanded in that sermon. 
So to, to throw that interpretation out and say, no, Jesus wasn't serious, you also have to dismiss the whole parable at the end of the sermon as hyperbole or ridiculous or something. So it's just, I don't know what more Jesus could have done or said to communicate that these are teachings he expects his people to follow. And yet we will bend over backwards to come up with you know, theological contortions to try to get out of those expectations. And that's, I think, why we're in the, the mess we're in. In the introduction to the book, you you have this line. You say that far from being hostile toward Jesus's message, my experience has been that our society and your, I think you're talking about just society as a whole, secular, the secular world, everyone, the society, our society is hungry for precisely the kind of integrity, gentleness, kindness, and love Jesus reveals in his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to ask you based on that quote and based on what you just said, there's a subtle, um, and I would consider, I think we would all agree, dangerous sort of misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus, particularly in the Western world and the modernized Western world, but globally in some ways, that everything has to do with utility. So what I mean by that is, you know, following Jesus, if I do X, Y, and Z, that is going to maximize utility, meaning it's going to lead to a life here and now uh, that's, you know, beneficial to me, that it's going to lead to a better life, a fuller life. The worst case scenario of this would be like the health and wealth gospel. But there are much more subtle ways that this plays into folks who don't even believe health and wealth gospel. We're all sort of health and wealthers in some ways. It's like, if I just do this, my life is going to be great, you know? Um, and so when we read a line like that from you, you know, the world is actually looking for this sort of integrity, gentleness, kindness, and love. Um, that stands in some ways, at least on the surface, in diametric opposition to the other thing you just said, that when Jesus lived this way, it actually led him to a Roman cross, to torture and death. So how do we reconcile these two things? Like, okay, Sky, this is great. I'm going to live this way. Jesus was serious. I'm going to try to do this stuff. It should sort of maximize utility in my life because the world at large is looking for these things. So if I give it to them, they're going to give me something back. There's going to be a reciprocal sort of thing, but that's not necessarily true. So talk about that tension a little bit. Yeah, what a brilliant question. That's exactly, um, you said it wonderfully, but here's here's the difference between where we are now and what Jesus experienced. 2,000 years of history has gone by, and over that 2,000 years, and there's been wonderful historical books written about this, uh, the Christian gospel has deeply shaped particularly Western civilization, but increasingly the global civilization. Mark Sayers has talked about this really, really well in recent years. He talks about how modern liberal democracies want the kingdom of God. They just don't want the king, right? They want justice and uh, human dignity and reconciliation and forgiveness. And, you know, when you look at the great reform movements of our society, most of them are founded on on Christian ideals. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people have divorced them from their origins in the teachings of Christ. But I mean, even what we're seeing right now with Black Lives Matters and the call for police reform and criminal justice reform, at at their foundations, those are all coming and birthed out of Christian values that did not exist prior to the New Testament in most of the world. So the difference is right now, we have a society that is longing for Christian values because of its 2000 years of history of being primed in them, but it doesn't want Jesus. So I think when we as followers of Jesus, not only step forward and say, 
we we believe in these values as well and we believe in incarnating those values and we want to point you to the one who actually empowers us to be able to fulfill these values some people in our society are going to resonate with that and say yes this is what we've been longing for for a long time there will be however others to reject it because we're also carrying along the message of loyalty and allegiance to jesus the christ the king so uh it's going to be a mixed bag and those who are entrenched with the systems of the world as they are, who don't want to see an expansion of justice and compassion and forgiveness and those kinds of values are going to hate us. There's going to be others who love all of those values, but say, hey, no, leave the Jesus thing. We want justice. We don't want Jesus is kind of the cliche now. Um, so, yeah, you're going to upset different people for different reasons. My issue is let's make sure if we're being rejected as followers of Christ, we're being rejected for the right reason. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I, I think there are some, I, 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 this may be in the book somewhere, but some Christians are suffering because they're just insufferable, because mm-hmm. they don't look like Jesus, because they're just jerks. And if that's why we're suffering, then we've done something wrong. But if we're suffering because of righteousness, which is what he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, then so be it. So I'm not offering a utilitarian vision of the Sermon on the Mount that if we just follow these teachings, the world's going to love us. Some aspects of the world may, others won't, but that's not why we do it. We do it because our allegiance is to the king, and this is the way his kingdom looks, and we are called to be agents of that kingdom in the world. The uh, punk rock in me doesn't want to quote this because everyone's everyone's quoting them right now, but des- deservingly so, but everyone's uh, been digging, at least in the Christian community, the uh, latest Tom Holland book, Dominion. Tom Holland, yes, Spider-Man, exactly. Tom Holland, but essentially his thesis is basically every you're so thoroughly christian even if you're not christian you don't even know it type of thing if right you, if you're in the western world and he had a tweet a few days ago that was basically like i'm sad to see what's going on in the world but it's great to see that my point my thesis of my latest book proven true before our very eyes and essentially that's like what you said what we're seeing even though there's all this division and controversy in our country people unknowingly are using Christian values and ethics to critique the opposing side. So much so that in our modern kind of American culture, people use Christian values and ethics to critique Christianity, and they're not even yes. aware of it. So the measuring st- the measuring stick, the yardstick, if you will, that you're using to measure is a gift that was given to you by Christianity, and you're using it to measure the church. And you're not even aware of it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to see that. And so it's, it's, a, it's an opportune time for the church to go like, hey, a lot of division. We may not agree on this and this, but you do, you do know that these are rooted in the teaching of an individual, namely Jesus. Which you're absolutely right. And I love Tom Holland's take on it, but it makes it that much more ironic when self-identified Christians stand up and oppose people they see as their political or cultural enemies when those political or cultural enemies are actually embodying a christian ethic Mm -hmm. so it's just bizarre what's going on in the world right now and um all the more reason why we need to get clarity about what we're really called to do and be as followers of christ yeah i mean it's 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 a it's a fascinating time um to to live in It, it so we're so saturated in the influence of Christianity, but yet we're seeing more hostility to Christianity grow at the same time. And it's certainly 
just just a weird weird experience and then like you said christians then aren't even obeying the the ethic i mean and you you understand it's difficult who wants to love their enemy who wants to do good and not let anybody know in a virtue signaling culture who wants to do that nobody does yeah um sky i want to give people a taste of the specifics um you have so the book is broken up into sections and there's so much in there i I would encourage everyone to go get the book and check it out um and it's there's it's the book is just full of conviction (laughs) if nothing else it's it sort of cuts to the heart and and makes us consider sort of our own posture toward the world uh so i just want to hit a few just to give people an idea of some of the concepts and ideas that you're getting into first one i want to ask you about and all of the little mini sections are all broken up this way they all begin with if jesus was serious then uh so the first one i want to ask you about just expound on this idea you write if jesus was serious then we will not see a loss of privilege as persecution. Talk a lot about. Um, talk a little bit more about that. That's a word that's thrown around um, loosely, actually, quite a bit in the in the Western Christian world. Uh, man, I feel persecution. I, you know, and I get it. People feel attacked or whatever. But but talk about that. What do you mean by that? Loss of privilege is not persecution. Yeah. I, first of all, there is absolute genuine Christian persecution in the world today. And there are organizations that are documenting that. In fact, it's been on the rise in recent years around the world. And when you encounter brothers and sisters who have faced genuine persecution for their faith, it should give you pause before you claim what discomfort you may experience as a Christian as persecution. Hmm. So I think in, in the United States, for example, there's no doubt that for many, many years, decades, if not centuries, Christianity has enjoyed a privileged position in the culture above other religious traditions. Um, From the 1950s, where we see in God we trust added as a a national motto or um, under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance to Christian symbolism being widely welcomed and expressed in our culture, that's, that's Christian privilege. So since the 1970s, really 1965, when the Immigration Reform Bill was passed that allowed my father to come to this country and maybe some people you guys know, you know, came, the, the, the ethnic makeup of the United States began to change dramatically in the 1970s. And we see a lot of people coming into this country with other religious backgrounds, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, um, not just Jewish and Christian anymore. And as a result, we're a much more pluralist society. And because of the First Amendment, establishing no religion in this country, there has been more uh, more desire to remove Christianity from its public place of, of privilege in, in the public square or schools, wherever it might be. And some Christians look at that and they call it persecution because we can't have a Christian prayer in my school anymore, or we can't have a Christian symbol in front of the courthouse or, you know, pick, pick your battle. That isn't persecution. That's a loss of privilege, yes, and you may grieve that if it's part of your background and and comfort and your heritage. Grieve it, fine, I get that, but don't call it persecution because that is um, disrespectful to, I think, our sisters and brothers who are facing genuine persecution for their faith. So that's where, and the other side of it is, I think, not just with Christians, but in our society in general, if you can claim the identity of victim, again, because of our Christian heritage, Tom Holland, Dominion, all that stuff, if you can claim the identity of a victim, you actually receive a privileged position in our society. 
And yes, there are genuine victims in American society today who should be cared for and should seek justice. But I think in the race to claim victimhood, some Christians have run to that identity as well. And we look for anything that we can point to that makes us feel victimized in order to actually gain power, which is the irony of the moment we live in. So uh, Jesus does say you will be persecuted for righteousness and blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake and all that. But you know, not being able to put a Christian monument in the public square is not persecution. It just isn't. It's a loss of privilege and mourn it if you want, but let's not freak out about it and, and see the sky as it's falling. Yeah, certainly the apostle Paul would not have been crying victim if they didn't let him put up a statue in Ephesus uh, next to Diana of, of, of Jesus or something like that. Right. Um, just like, just a foreign world to the writers of the new Testament. Yeah. There, there seems to be, uh, and I got this feeling throughout the book um, and the book actually is, you know, I, I don't want to uh, uh, misrepresent it. It is actually quite, it's quite comforting in some ways and in some, some really, interesting ways and interesting places in the book. But throughout the book, more than anything, I felt a sort of confrontation. And to me, personally, reading um, your essays in the book, I just thought, man, you know, one of the things that maybe I'm lacking, and certainly one of the things that so many people who um, are Christians today that I know are lacking seems to be a sort of resilience in the face of difficulty, you know, and when we go extreme, and the moment something gets hard, we just call it persecution, uh, we actually handicap our own ability to develop the sort of posture of resilience and strength uh, that comes against resistance. You know, anybody who's worked out and gone to the gym or whatever, it's like, that doesn't come easy. You're supposed to feel a little bit of pushback and strain in order to develop those muscles. So yeah, I love that, that thought. I want to ask you another one just to give people a little bit more. I thought this was a fascinating one. You write, if Jesus was serious, then God is both tender and terrifying. Um, Everybody loves (laughs) the tender part. 98% of the songs we sing in our church um, I don't, I'm, I'm going to get critiqued here, but the reality is 98% of the songs we sing in our church display God's tenderness toward us as mm-hmm. individuals, which that's a whole other conversation. Um, but you know, if 2%, if that is like the terrifying nature of God. So talk about that. Cause I think on the surface, terrifying doesn't sound familiar to us as Western Christians. When it comes to God, um, we ignore the fear of the Lord uh, sections of the scripture. So what do you mean by that? If Jesus was serious, God is both tender and terrifying. Yeah, I think that uh, that section is when I begin talking about the Lord's Prayer, which is in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins, he's teaching his disciples, when you pray, this is, this is how to pray. And he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Jesus was rather innovative in referring to God as Father. And that's not something that was commonly done in his culture at the time. And it speaks to an intimate relationship between us and God, uh, the way a child and father relation. And Jesus uses that metaphor over and over and over again in different places in his parables. And um, just before this, when he talks about loving your enemies, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So there's this intimacy that God loves us the way a father cares for and loves uh, his child. But then he turns around and says, hallowed be your name, which you know, more literally means your name is holy. And holiness is not primarily defined as ethical purity, although it does mean that. 
at its core, holiness means utterly different or distinct or transcendent or unlike anything in creation. So you have this juxtaposition right at the beginning of this prayer of God is our intimate father, and yet he is wholly other. He is totally knowable and intimate with us, and yet so unfathomable and unknowable and mysterious that you should both be drawn to him in loving tenderness and terrified by him because he is powerful and totally different. So it's he's a consuming fire, as the Old Testament says, as the book of Hebrews says, and yet he is our our heavenly father. So that paradox somehow has to exist within the Christian imagination. And Rudolf um, Otto spoke about this and the idea of the holy. There's the fascinon and the tremendum, the fascinon being that which draws us in the beauty of God. And then there's the, the terrifying terror side of him that repels us. And that is a really hard thing to get people to um, to wrestle with because our cultural, even our familial instinct is to go one way or the other you know on a fundamentalist side it's you know sinners in the hand of angry god hanging over you know the fires of hell whatever this terrifying and then like you said an awful lot of contemporary christianity just focuses on god as this intimate tender father and that's it and to to completely go one direction or the other is to miss a critical revelation of who god is in scripture and somehow we have to hold that tension together which is exactly what jesus does at the beginning of that prayer Jay, that was pretty interesting. As as Sky was talking, I was trying to reflect on how much of our worship reflects that, and um, how much you know we're singing these songs over and over and over again. Um, we do need. That's how we get balanced in there. Is 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 when these songs remind us of that. And I could think of. I could only think of one song. Uh, it's like called "Only a Holy God." Only a Holy God. That's in like regular rotation at churches right now. That has that sort of like, dude. God loves you, but he's also the Holy Father. So watch out type of thing. So there's definitely a balance in our corporate worship that we probably need to to rediscover. Yeah, that was. Yeah, And singing is a big part of that. It's not just singing, though. It's not just preaching for that matter, but even the forms in which we worship, you know, do they communicate merely God's uh, familiarity or when you step into a, a worship environment? Is there something about the space, the setup, the procedures that that communicates this different, right? This is sacred. This is holy. And a lot of lower church evangelical traditions are just not good at that at all. Yeah, Yeah, we we, uh, in the evangelical sort of world, we kicked out the transcendent from our architecture to our liturgy. The transcendent element is gone Um, to the way we paint our walls, to the way we change a a warehouse into a, a church sanctu- sanctuary, that transcendent element is gone. And Jay, Jay's actually recently written on in one of his chapters on his book, just how culture is longing for a transcendent experience totally. because they have the, the world offers every type of experience you can imagine, but they can't do that sort of metaphysical level transcendent type of type of thing. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yep. Yeah, I, I love that. We could spend two hours just talking about that. <laughs> um, even what you said, Isaac, we we call uh, the the gathering spaces worship centers now rather than sanctuaries because of our deep pursuit of, you know, we want to be relevant to culture rather than offering. Yeah, and we were like 40 years ago, the evangelical culture, if you talk with senior pastors now who are in that baby boomer um, category, many are retiring, they, they'll tell you how they weren't just 
not into that. They were almost anti-transcendence. Um, right. They purposely made decisions to get that out of the church. Yeah. I'll tell um, you a story that, that captured this 20 years ago when I was in seminary. Right? This is not a recent story. 20 years ago, some of my classmates took um, two television monitors, like back when they were big and they were on carts, and they took them to Northwestern University, just north of Chicago. And they, on one screen, they showed the contemporary worship service from a mega church. And on another screen, they showed a Catholic mass. And as students came by, you know, they were looking for students who don't go to church who are secular in some way. And they asked them, if you were, uh, if you had spiritual questions or you were looking for God or stuff, which of these two uh, churches would you go to? And the overwhelming response was the, the Catholic mass. And they said, well, why not this one? And they go, that, that looks like a rock concert, right? I, I get that anywhere. All, every weekend I go someplace that looks like that. That's not, yeah. they were looking for something transcendent and different. And that was 20 years ago. And at least where I live, I've seen a growing engagement of young people toward higher liturgy churches and yeah. away from contemporary mega churches. Not, it's not universal, but that's kind of the general trend. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, Isaac, people are hungry for that transcendent that they can't get anywhere else in the culture. You can get a rock concert anywhere. You can get a large group. Well, you used to before COVID, you could get a large group together <laughs> to sing and have a good time any, anywhere, but to, to get a sense of mystery and transcendence and holiness uh, that that's rare today. And that's something the church has lost in many places. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Uh, I want to ask you one more before we wrap up. And again, we are just scratching the surface here. There's so, so many um, fascinating thoughts that you have in the book. Uh, let me ask you one more about um, wisdom. Uh, Isaac and I just had a conversation with uh, another friend of ours, Brett McCracken, about wisdom. It's something we need so deeply today. Um, you write, if Jesus was serious, then a wise person may not be easy to identify. Uh, which which might be um, frustrating for those of us who are listening because we're like, wait, what? I, I thought I could just go find someone, some wise sage, you know, and they're easy to identify and I just learn from them and, and then boom, I'm done. You know, I've got the sage in my life. What do you mean by that? Why is a wise person not easy to uh, to identify? Yeah, I'm trying to recall what part of the book that this is coming out of. I'm assuming it's from the end, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. parable of the wise and the foolish yep. builder. Yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes me about that parable is from appearances, the two houses look the same, right? You can't see a foundation. That's the whole point. It's underground, right? Uh, the sand foundation and the stone foundation aren't revealed until the homes are put under stress, until there's a storm. But until there's a storm, they look the same on the outside. And so uh, the idea of wanting to, to be a wise person or to follow a wise person means you can't just look at the surface of things and go, that person's got it all figured out. Again, look at contemporary American life. If you see two people and they both, I don't know, they're both in the suburbs, they both have a house, they both have a job, a family, a car, whatever, you go, all right, they look the same. I can pick either one. They know how life works. It isn't until crisis comes, till challenge arises, that you see what their foundation really is. And that means you need time. It, it takes time in relationship with somebody to see whether the foundation they've built their life on is really worth emulating. And if we think we can just follow somebody on Twitter or on Instagram, or even see a pastor at a distance, you know, in a large auditorium and they're on stage once a week and you hear them talk and we make assumptions about their wisdom, you can't know. 
it, you, there is no substitute for intimate relationship to discover what is somebody really made of and how do they face the challenges of life that invariably will come. And as much as I want to help people with the books I write or my daily devotional or a podcast, and I know you guys too, there's only so much good we can do because everyone needs actual human incarnate relationships in their lives mm -hmm. where you can get beneath the surface and see what's really there. As much as somebody might think they know me from my books or some other way they've engaged me in the media, ask my kids, ask my wife, ask the people who've known me for 20, 30 years, they'll tell you the truth. Here's where Sky is wise and here's where he's a fool. Um, but we, we live on such a surfacey form of, of engagement right now. And we think we can be discipled by a celebrity pastor or by a book and you just can't, you have to go deeper. So that's where, you know, the wise and foolish, you, you just can't tell from the surface. And we've seen that play out over time, even in some of the celebrity pastors that we've exalted in recent yeah. decades. And you realize, oh my gosh, behind the scenes, there was all kinds of bad yeah. stuff going on that nobody else could see except the people that were closest to that person. Um, so it takes time and that just, it's a warning to be careful of who you pick to shape your life and who you pick to emulate and choose the people with whom you have a deeper, more intimate knowledge and the foundations of their lives have become evident to you. Which is incredibly relevant for the time that we're in. Um, I mean, the country in some places is, is beginning to open up, but at least where Jay and I are at. Um, we're like on lockdown still. Santa Clara County, Bay Area, California, we're, we got pretty strict rules still. But one of the things we've been encouraging people is that as everyone went to shelter in place, there's a temptation to go find um, a church that has the best speaker. Because if you're not going to go, I'm going to listen to this this guy preach, man. He's way better than, than my lo local pastor who never even did an online service. He's clearly got his, his friend holding an iPhone for his first live stream. But he, here's the thing is that um, your small church with your local pastor, he knows your name. He loves you. And you can be in a relationship with him. You can see his character. He can see your character. The digital world doesn't love you. It doesn't love you. That pastor doesn't know your name. He doesn't care to know your name, despite if it has a good slogan that says, you know, we're everyone knows your name. They don't know your name. He's not going to bed. And it's not a knock on those ministries. Jane and I both pastor relatively large churches. It's, it's not a knock um, because there's, there's a, there's a need for those excellent speakers in the, in the culture. Um, but that doesn't replace the wisdom and discipleship that you could receive in an embodied experience at your local church where the pastor right. prays for you before he goes to bed. There's, there's a, difference. And, and there's a need yeah. for all of it. And there's a need for the podcast we're doing right now, but it's not a replacement. And right now our encouragement is don't think these digital experiences are replacements for the local ministry. Absolutely. The simplest way to put that and the way I share it is the level of influence should be proportional to the level of intimacy. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you might engage a podcast or a book or a celebrity preacher or whatever and enjoy or appreciate their teaching or input, but don't allow that influence to be more than your spouse, right? yeah. the person who's most intimate in your life, for example. Um, and, and this isn't just a warning about digital tools like podcasts or online church, but frankly, even in in large churches where you could physically go up and meet the person who spoke on the platform, chances are you're not 
you're not going to know that person. They're not going to know you. And the problem is in a lot of the American church, we have already disincarnated ministry. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have a teacher who uh, explains the scriptures to you from a distance who you don't know deeply, but that's not a substitute for having a, a spiritual father or mother in your life who knows you deeply and can help you wrestle with and apply those scriptures in the reality of your life. We all need that as well or brothers and sisters for that matter. But I think in a lot of American Christianity, we have substituted the familial relationships of discipleship for the celebrity relationship Mm -hmm. of that superstar communicator. And whether it's happening digitally or in a big auditorium, it's, it's the same problem and we have to move past that. Yeah. That's a crucially important word, particularly. I think, you know, it's, this was happening long before the digital age, obviously, and the modern evangelical movement, but especially now uh, in the age of celebrity and in the age of platform when anybody can get a platform. Um, Yeah, this, this is such a crucially important word. You know, Sky, I wish we had more time. There's so much good stuff in here. So I would encourage everybody to go and pick up the book, you know, What If Jesus Was Serious, which is out now. Um, For folks who are just sort of being introduced to you now and are intrigued, not just by some of your ideas here, but uh, by some of your thoughts previously, where uh, can folks find your work, connect with you online, find resources that you put out there? Where, where are the places people can go? Uh, a couple things come to mind. One is holypost.com, which is where our podcast is located, as well as some of the resources, articles, things I've written. Um, and then withgoddaily.com is where people can go to learn more about my daily devotional and sign up for that. I've written numerous other books. So if you search for me on Amazon or wherever you get your books, you're going to find that stuff. But if you don't want to commit to like a 200-page relationship with me, uh, <laughs> I'd say go to Holy Post or With God Daily. And uh, you can get more of, and, and follow me on social media. You'll get more of my doodles and, and insights, things like that. Yeah, cool. Sky, you, uh, you really are um, a crucially important voice in the church today. You're helping us think better and think more deeply and uh, consider ways in which we might follow Jesus more faithfully. So, yeah, we here at the Regeneration Project are big fans of yours, cheering you on, really grateful for your work. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for for having me. And you guys asked really thoughtful questions. So um, I'm glad that you have a following on this podcast because they're being served well by what you're doing.